Somebody tell me who this guy is. Kind of wacky looking. Anybody? He's just a he's a wild and crazy guy. Uh, no, you don't know who he is. No, it's not Steve Martin. Uh, uh, so, so I there, there is there is a marginal chance that you might know that after I tell you who he is that you might say, oh. Okay, but most of you are going to go, so, so, so what, what are we talking about here? What is but but, I, but he, he's a, actually kind of an important figure, so I'm going to just tell you his name. Um, oops, I just turned off my phone. Um, sorry. Uh, okay, all right, here, now I'm back. His name is George Santiana who lived from 1863 to 1952, not Carlos Santana. <laughs> they, they, are, they are very often confused. Uh, yeah, yes, George Santayana uh, was a famous Spanish uh, philosopher and author and poet uh, who was apparently a really, really, really smart guy. Uh, who wrote a bunch of really important stuff? But if you're not in, if you're not a philosophy major, uh, or you don't hang around with philosophy majors, you're not going to really know who he is. And and all this stuff was written in Spanish anyhow, so duh. Uh, but he is kind of is. You might recognize one of the things that he's famous for saying. Like this is one famous quote, even though it's slightly taken. It's it's usually not quoted correctly. His his original quote was this. Uh, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. He is credit, credited with making this phrase. Uh, it's very often rendered these days into this. Uh, those who don't learn from history, history are condemned to repeat it. Either way, it's pretty good thought, right? Uh, if you don't learn from the past, you're going to repeat it. And if you haven't learned from history, if you don't pay attention to history, if you don't apply the principles of history to your life. And I'm not necessarily talking about history in terms of the Roman Empire or the causes of World War I. Those comes in handy, too. I'm also talking about the, the history of all the weird, quirky, messed up things that have happened in your own life. If you don't learn uh, from the past, you're condemned to repeat it. All right, so uh, the reason... And that will come in the context for why I decided to, to bring up George Santiano will be useful in a second, I think. So let's do a little quick recap. Uh, or that we went off, we finished Acts chapter 6 last week. And the, the main thing that happened in Acts chapter 6 is that Stephen, one of the original deacons uh, that, was that were appointed by the church to help take care of all the needs, the practical needs of the church, he's also apparently a pretty great preacher, and he went out, uh, and, and when he wasn't taking care of widows and orphans, he was out preaching the gospel, laying hands on people, people getting healed. And uh, it started a kind of a riot. Uh, some men from this synagogue, uh, some people from the synagogue of the freedmen rose up and they argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with his wisdom and with the spirit to which he was speaking. Just, just stop here.
The Holy Spirit is what made the difference between Stephen, just a regular guy walking the streets, and Stephen, a regular guy walking the streets, telling people about Jesus and having signs and wonders just occur all around him. The power of the Holy Spirit. I will keep on saying this until I am finally convinced. I hope, hopefully you'll be convinced too, but uh, not, by my, not by power, but my, my spirit, says the Lord. The power of the Holy Spirit is what makes the difference in all of our lives. And if you're trying to figure this out in your own brain, if you're trying to serve God in your own strength and just try to be a better person because you think God wants you to be a better person, I have to tell you this. God does not want you to be a better person. God wants you to be a person who trusts in his power that surrenders your life to his presence living in you, and then he'll do whatever needs to be done with you. But if you're on the outside saying, look at me, Jesus, look at me, I'm, I'm being a better person because I, because I want to make you happy, God already loves you. God's... Uh, trying harder to be a better person is not going to make God love you any more than he already does. He could not love you. God could not love you any more than he does right this second. And all he wants, what? God could not, God already, God doesn't want you to try to be a better person. God wants you to let the, the Holy Spirit come into your life and do whatever he wants to do with you. And in the process, he may make you a better person. He may help you undercover. He make you, may help you overcome all the ways that you will never be a better person because until we all get to heaven, we're not going to be perfect. But the Holy Spirit can take broken down, messed up, goofed up, um, roadkill people and use them anyhow for his glory through the power of his spirit. He's not asking you to make yourself a better person before he can say, okay, all right, Shirley, finally you got it together. Finally you got it together, so now I can use you. <clears throat> what? Yeah, that's right. I, we must decrease so he can... In, all Jesus wants you to do is, is embrace him he, and, and let him... Just, you and Jesus need to come to an agreement that he loves you and that he will always love you, and that you can't make him stop loving you. Because he's never going to quit. And just relax in that and, and celebrate the fact that you are loved that much and the Holy Spirit just comes into your life and does stuff. Like this, it takes a regular dude named Stephen, and Stephen goes walking around, and the Holy Spirit, oozing out of Stephen, just gets all over people. And crazy things happen to them. They find out about Jesus. Um, God starts answering prayers. The power of God starts hitting people, and the devil gets mad. The enemy, the enemy. You, you know what? If you really want to get the devil's attention, just surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. You really want to make an enemy out of the enemy. Start walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stop trying to be some holier than thou, so self righteous. I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to do better and try harder, person. And just surrender to the love of Jesus and start telling people about Jesus. And let the Holy Spirit start living through you. And that makes the devil really mad. And so he got a bunch of people to lie about Stephen. Uh, and bottom line is they started sp uh, spreading lies about supposedly he was blaspheming against Moses and against God. And Stephen gets arrested. And, okay, this is what happened. 
Um, um, this breaks a, f- a few of, of the rules for how to put together a good PowerPoint presentation. Uh, um, this, this is part of Acts chapter 7. Uh, and I'm, I, I don't know what to... Obviously, we can't cover all this. Uh, right up at the top, the high priest said, now there's a big trial. He's, he's in front of the Sanhedrin. He's in front of the official, official Jewish court. In Jerusalem, there were, two, there were two lines of authority. There was the Romans, who enforced all the civil laws of Rome. But then there was the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court, combined Pharisees and Sadducees and some scribes and folks like that. And they were basically responsible for enforcing the day-to-day ritual laws. If you were a good Jew, you were supposed to be obeying the laws of Moses. And so most of the laws that really affected you were the, were the Jewish laws, and the Jewish court was in charge of enforcing those laws. And so they hauled him up in front of the Jewish court, and all of this stuff happened. Um, so I'm just going to give you the, what's, it's not called Cliff Notes anymore. What's it called now? Uh, if you, if you, what? Spark Notes. Spark Notes, is that what you said? Okay, so this is the Spark Notes version. This is the highlights of all the, what, because it's, it's the priest said, is this true? Like, oh, is this true? Uh, this is my shocked face. And so he basically invited Stephen to get up and preach. That was a bad, bad choice. But so, so all that tiny print boils down to this. First, Stephen starts talking about, he, he's going to tell them the whole history of Israel. Uh, that's what all that tiny print was. He's, he's, he starts up reminding them of Abraham, who was just a guy that heard God say, Abraham, uh, I want you to trust me. And if you'll just trust me, I will uh, make your descendants. I will give you a land that's just for you and your descendants. And they will, your descendants will be so numerous that there'll be more, you'll have more descendants than there are grains of sand on all the seashores, on all the beaches in the world. Uh, and, and Abraham said, far out. That's awesome. Uh, yes, God, let's do it. Uh, at this point, Abraham didn't have any kids. His wife was, a, was he, he, um, either he was shooting blanks or his wife was barren. They had no kids. Uh, and yet Abraham said, okay, show me this land. I'll go wherever you send me, and I'll trust whatever you tell me. And, and God made Abraham a set of promises. Uh, and he sealed those promises with a ceremonial act called circumcision to prove that Abraham now belonged to God and his family belonged to God. So, so, he, so that's how the story starts. And then he tells them the story of, of Joseph, who was victimized by his brothers. Uh, Joseph is, was uh, uh, one of Abraham's descendants. He had 12 brothers. And the, the 11 brothers beat Joseph up and threw him in prison, and then, I mean, threw him in a pit and then sold him into slavery. Uh, and God used Joseph to actually bless and heal his brothers uh, when everybody ended up in Egypt. Uh, so he tells them all about the Egypt and the captivity, uh, and then it all goes into how even though they tried to kill Joseph, God uh, j- helped Joseph forgive his brothers and ended up saving the whole nation of Israel. Uh, and now the whole nation of Israel ended up living in Egypt for like 400 years. Uh, 
at, at that point, there was a mean, uh, a mean pharaoh who started persecuting all of uh, the, the Jews that were living there. He turned them all into slaves. They didn't start out being slaves, but they ended up being slaves. So he tells them all that story and, uh, about, about Moses, who was rejected at first by his uh, own countrymen, and then Joseph ran away, and then God brought him back out of the desert, and then God turned him into a super prophet, and then they, at every turn, kept ignoring and kept ignoring and kept ignoring Moses. Uh, Moses brings the, the Ten Commandments down from the mountain and finds that they're all worshiping a golden calf, and then they're always complaining about the conditions, and then when they get to the promised land, they won't go in. There's just one failure after another of them resisting Moses' leadership. Resist, resist, resist. Then, fast forwards, he skips up and he starts talking about David and Solomon, uh, two of the greatest kings in the history of Israel, and David and Solomon, who, for some reason, were just... God had given them a perfect plan for uh, a place to worship called the tabernacle. It was a big circus tent, basically, with special symbolic construction, as, as uh, Chuck can tell you, everything that God did to build the tabernacle. But they, but David didn't think it was right for God to be living in a tent. They wanted to build him a nice, fancy temple. And even though he didn't get to do that, Solomon did get to do that, even though God never said, David, Solomon, I want you to build me a temple. But they built him one anyhow, and God finally just said, whatever. Uh, and so uh, there's this whole list. Uh, and at that point... Stephen just kind of runs out of gas because he's only like halfway through the Old Testament. Uh, but he, at this point, he just stops in his sermon uh, because maybe he doesn't need to say anything more because his audience knows what happened after that anyhow. Because what happened after that was one failure after another. So, uh, so let's, I've told you already who his audience was. Pharisees, Sadducees, the Jewish rulers. Uh, here's the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. They were the most learned and most respected spiritual leaders of all Jews across all the known world. They just weren't the rulers of Jews in Jerusalem. They were the final authority. They were like uh, uh, a collection of popes all p packed together uh, in Jerusalem. But they made final decisions about the law and that all Jews everywhere around the whole world had to obey, not just in Jerusalem. Um, and they knew the rest of the story. Even though Stephen stopped, they knew that the rest of the story involved a bad king followed by a not-so-bad king followed by people, uh, God's people making sin after sin after sin followed by judgment after judgment where uh, the, uh, Israel was actually they split in half. They split into two, two different countries. They couldn't get along with each other. And then they got invaded by the Assyrians. And they got invaded and taken captivity and enslaved by the Babylonians. And then when they got out of Babylon, they came back. And then they got conquered by the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. And they got a little bit of independence for about 100 years. And then the Romans came in and just shut everything down. It was just... They were, Israel became like the punching bag of the world. Talk about roadkill. And, and the Jews were so frustrated by this 
the, the, in the hundred years between the Babylonian captivity and the time of Jesus, the Jews, mostly led by the, by a, the party called the Pharisees, put together this, this giant moonshot research project. We are going to study every single jot and tittle and letter of the law, and we are going to write commentary after commentary on the law. We are going to start teaching people all the rules and all the details and all the cases about... We're not just going to take the Ten Commandments. We're not just going to take the, the, the law of Deuteronomy. We're not just going to take uh, all the stuff that's in the Pentateuch. We are going to just... We're going to take that and we're going to expand it on every application and every case and every possible ramification of every law. And we're going to write commentaries on it. And we're going to teach people all these commentaries so that they will, we will never, ever, ever, ever fail God again. Because we will be able to understand the law perfectly. And we will be able to live the law perfectly. So that means God will never have to send anybody to invade us or conquer us or humiliate us or... Um, punish us again because we will never, ever make any more mistakes. <laughs> um, so, so they knew, so they knew all this story because their whole lives have been dedicated to make sure that story was never repeated. That's what I just told you. So now we're going to pick up. Now we're back in big print. I I just told you what was in the tiny print. And now here's the big print. So Stephen takes a breath, deep breath, and he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Pretty much still true. The only time we ever get off the path when we are even today serving the Lord is when we resist the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, Gene Hall. And Gene Hall says, (laughs) Anytime, to me, it's very, very rare. It's very, very rare that when the Holy Spirit nudges us, we have no clue. The Holy Spirit nudges us. Real often we nudge back. And we, and we sometimes, we just pretend like we don't understand. Sometimes we, we try to explain to God why, why we, we, we do understand, but we just can't do it His way. And, and then we... We get off track. And, uh, but anyhow, you, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing, even right now, by arresting me, by hauling me up here, by, having, by, by putting me on trial, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the per- prophets did your fathers not persecute? Every single prophet was crosswise with the, the leader. Now, there are a bunch of false prophets who just told the kings what they wanted to hear. And then there was like Elijah and Elisha and, Le- and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, the anointed prophets of God who would come and speak truth to power. And they always got like thrown into pits. 
uh, or hauled off um, attack, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Pregnant pause. You have been resisting God. You and your kind. You and your ilk. You and your club. Have been resisting the Holy Spirit. And you have been resisting God. For a thousand years. And even now. You have become betrayers and murderers. Of the righteous one. That you were told. And prophesied was coming. And he came. And you killed him. You received law that was ordained by angels and you didn't keep it. As you can imagine, this didn't go over very well. Uh, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, which is pretty deep. They were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him which is creepy, but it just shows that's, that's a thing when you were really, really angry at somebody and just wanted to chew their eyeballs out. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I would just stop. I don't know if you're ever going to have to appear before the Sanhedrin, but maybe you have to appear before your boss. Maybe you have to uh, appear before some other authority. Maybe you just have to face your friends with a failure. Maybe you have to face your family with a failure. Maybe you have to, you have to face a situation uh, where your life is being really challenged and, and you feel like you're attacked from every side. When you are full of the Holy Spirit, you don't see the bad guys. You see Jesus. You fo- being full of the Holy Spirit allows you to look past all of the threats, all of the evil, all of the darkness, all of the fear. Being full of the Holy Spirit allows you to see Jesus, allows you to experience Jesus. It allows you to, to experience the, the presence of Jesus in your life, even though things are hard and even though things are scary. And you know, when this really comes in handy is when it's really all your fault. It's easy to stand up and say, well, you are liars and I'm, I've got right on my side and I'm going to stand up for the truth. But sometimes you have to face those situations when it's absolutely 100% your fault and you screwed up and you know you screwed up. And what you'd like to have as a whole to just open up and swallow you up and just take you off the face of the earth. But no... You're accountable. And even then, the Holy Spirit's there. The Holy Spirit's providing for you. The Holy Spirit's living inside of you. And even then, Jesus is on your side. And when, you, when you're full of the Holy Spirit, even though you're looking through pain and you're looking through fear, you can see and experience the love and power and presence of God. And He will take you through whatever it is that you have to go through to get to where he wants you to be. You'll just surrender to the Holy Spirit. 
and say, God, I've, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Uh, I'm trusting you and just walk through it. So, so that's what's happening to Stephen. And Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Which all he was just doing was telling the truth. But what they heard was blasphemy. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God, where he now clearly identified Jesus to be one with God. That's blasphemy. And they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So it was like, it was sort of a fake trial anyhow. But then when he said, I see Jesus standing in, at the right hand of God in heaven, it was like, ah, I can't hear this anymore. Grab him, get him. Oh, there's like a big mob. They're just going crazy. And they drag him to the outside of the city and then began stoning him. And so I, I came across something. I, this, is, this is no extra charge. I, but I discovered something that I thought you might find interesting. So when you, yeah, that's right. But wait, there's more. Um, so we all know that there's a thing called stoning, right? And when you, not that this is a, a topic of conversation at most dinner tables, but uh, when you think of stoning, um, when you when you conjure up a scene in your mind, or maybe you've seen a movie of of stoning, what do you usually think of? You know, don't go into the gory details, but what do you think usually happens? A th- throwing a rock. What? Slow death, very slow, very painful. Uh, that's a lot of broken bones. But you usually see lots, you know, the idea is that there's a mob and they've all got big rocks like somebody staked down or and then people just start throwing rocks at them, and then they just eventually they're not alive anymore. Um, so that's not the way it worked. And the Jewish, because the Jews were really, really good at making laws, they had specific laws on how to stone somebody. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to read it to you now, because why not? Uh, in rabbinic law, capital punishment. Okay, so, so turns out that capital punishment by the time of Jesus was very controversial. Uh, Levitical law said we just kill people all the time for whatever. Uh, By the time we move into this, uh, by the time of the New Testament, uh, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees agreed that some offenses had to be punished by death, but that this was a serious, serious responsibility it's like they had some version of the Innocence Project back then. It's a serious, serious responsibility, and you didn't stone somebody to death just for no reason. In rabbinic law, capital punishment could only be afflicted by the verdict of a regularly constituted court with 23 qualified members. There must be the most trustworthy and convincing testimony of at least two qualified eyewitnesses to the crime, who must also depose or, or, or make sure that the culprit had been forewarned of the criminality and the consequences of his crime. 
The culprit must be a person of legal age and of sound mind, and the crime must be proved to have been committed of their own free will and without the aid of any other person. On the day the verdict is pronounced, the convict is led forth to execution. The Torah prescribes, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and the rabbis maintain that this law must be extended beyond the limits of social intercourse in life and be applied even to the convicted criminal who, though a sinner, is still thy brother. The spirit of love must be manifested by, a, by giving this person a decent death. That parents shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the parents. Every man shall be put to death for his own sins. That's a quote from the Deuteronomy. And rabbinic Jewish prudence followed this principle both to the letter and the spirit. A sentence is not, also is not attended by confiscation of the convict's goods. And if you committed a crime, it's a capital crime, we're going to kill you. All your possessions still went to your children. Nothing of your possessions was ever confiscated. And the Talmud limits the use of the death penalty to two, two points. And point one, while about to do the crime... It, 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 it applies to criminals who, when about to do the crime, were warned not to commit the crime in advance while in the presence of two witnesses. And only individuals who meet a strict list of standards were considered acceptable witnesses. So uh, if you went out and committed a crime without being warned in advance that it was a capital offense, you couldn't be tried and killed for it. You had to be warned in advance that what you're about to do is a capital crime, and it had to be witnessed by two qualified witnesses, and the qualified the qualifications were spelled out. You couldn't just be some dude walking across the street. Second of all, you had to have been warned and you had to have committed the crime in front of those same two witnesses. If, if, it, weren't those, if it didn't meet those two criteria, it was not a capital crime. Y'all follow me so far? It's hard. In other words, under Jewish law, it's hard to be stoned to death. Okay. In theory, what pe- people see is that uh, stoning is usually uh, carried out in a way, okay, in theory, the Talmudic method of law is to be carried out in a way that differs from mob stoning. It doesn't mean that mobs didn't stone people, but if it was a legal criminal punishment, there was a specific way. Uh, after, the, after the criminal has been determined to be guilty before God and the great Sanhedrin, the two valid witnesses and the sentence criminal this is heavy, dude, y'all. The two people who witnessed and made the charges have to go up to the edge of a two-story building. From there, the two witnesses must push the criminal off the roof of the building. The two-story height is chosen as this height is estimated by the Talmud to affect a quick and painless demise. That if you push somebody off a two-story building, it should be enough to kill them without creating a lot of suffering. Not so high, though, that their body is disfigured or dismembered. And this is all in the law. After the criminal has fallen, listen, wait. After the criminal has fallen, the two witnesses must then drop a large boulder onto the criminal. It requires both of the witnesses to lift the boulder together just to make sure that he died. And 
Then and only then, if the criminal did not die from the fall or from the crushing of the large boulder, then any people in the surrounding area are to quickly rush up and cause him to die by stoning with whatever rocks they can find. Well, you, you're right, but, but by that time he's under the boulder and people can't tell. Uh, I don't know. It all sounds kind of messed up, but it, the whole point is it, it's really hard and complicated to stone somebody to death legally. And so here's what we know about this. It was not legal. It did not follow any of the Jewish laws. Um. It was, it was an act of murder. The Sanhedrin committed an act of murder on Stephen out of their own fearful desperation because they were that much in the throes of darkness and fear because they saw that, that Christianity, as it was rising up, was eroding their prestige and their power and their respect in the community. And in an act of desperation, they had to shut this guy up as fast as they could because he had just called them out. He had, he, had, he had read back their own history to them and said, you are doing it again. You have, not learned, you have not learned a thing from the last 400 years. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold. You might think that somebody who had been lied about, who had been rejected, but had people come up and just say terrible, untrue things, and then got pushed off of a building, then got a stone dropped on him, then, I mean, that at this point, he might say something like, God, Please drop a bunch of stones on all these people. Uh, please, God, justify me. Please, or a piano. Or God, please vindicate me in the eyes of my enemies. God, rain fire and brimstone down on my But no, he said with his last breath, do not hold the sin against them. Lord, please, sounds like Jesus. If Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, honestly, that's that is pretty amazing. Um, Jesus, I'm trusting you. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, I'm I am giving you all of me that I know how to give you in this moment. I'm I'm committing my my spirit into your care. Which is another thing that Jesus said. Lord, just please, please, with my dying breath. This is like. And it doesn't. He doesn't say. And tell my fiance that I love her. No, he just says, "Lord, please forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them." And having had said this, he fell asleep. And that's the end of chapter seven. Verse one of chapter eight says, "And Paul, Saul, was in full agreement with all of this." Because see, right up here, witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now we know the witnesses. Now you know who the witnesses are. Who are the witnesses? The two people that made the accusation had to take off their cloaks 
and put them down, and they basically gave their cloaks to Saul to hold for them while they climbed up on the top of a building and dragged a boulder up there and pushed Stephen off and dropped a rock on him. And Saul was not only holding their robes, but he was going, yeah, yeah, take that, take that. Now you see what's going to come. Now you're not going to mess with God anymore. Yeah, <laughs> high fives all around. Great rock throwing, guys. He was in full agreement with the idea that they should just go out and break. Very clear, super, very clear black letter law that says you can't do this. This is murder. Don't do this. And, and Saul was like right in there with him saying, these are exigent circumstances. I, was just, I learned that from law and order. These are exigent circumstances. You don't have to have a warrant when you've got a guy that's just making people mad. Uh, and, and Saul was like 100% saying, I totally, I'm totally behind that. I'm just sorry I didn't have a chance to grab a rock. Lord, do not hold his sin against him. Okay, so where does this all leave us? I mean, this is, uh, this was, uh, in its own way, a crime more shocking than the crime that killed Jesus. Jesus was executed under Roman law. The, the Jews were at least smart enough uh, to trick Pontius Pilate into executing Jesus because they knew that they, they, that they would be called on the carpet if they trumped up charges against Jesus. So they just tricked uh, the Romans into executing Jesus. This is the Jews violating their own laws and saying, you know what? Let's just commit murder. Um, we'll think of some good story later. Or we'll just declare war on the Christians. We're just, we're so mad and we'll just declare war on them and, and we'll wipe them off the face of the earth and then we'll ask forgiveness later. Ever felt that way? Just so, so mad, so freaked out, so desperate that I know this is wrong, I know I shouldn't do it, and I'll just have to ask forgiveness later because I just can't stand this anymore. Well, that's what they did. And so here's the question. Oh, let me go back. This quote up here, the seed of the church, that's half of a phrase. Anybody... That's half of a famous phrase from one of the early church fathers named Tertullian. Uh, Tertullian, who uh, was pastored, I was a bishop in North Africa, uh, who happened to live with persecution his entire life. Um, and this is half of a phrase. Does anybody know what the first part of the phrase is? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The people who, like Stephen, held firm their faith in Jesus and didn't back down and didn't compromise. They weren't troublemakers. They just lived by faith. And uh, they wouldn't recant. They wouldn't collaborate with the enemy. They just stayed faithful to Jesus. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of that inspired 
generations of people to say, if Stephen could go through this, I can go through it. And more to the point, these images in Paul and Saul's eyes for years of Stephen dying in, in his conscience, knowing that he had murdered Stephen, led eventually to a massive amount of repentance in Saul's life, and God extended forgiveness to him and turned him into the most passionate advocate for Christ of his generation. All right, now throw it back here. So here's my question. What have you learned from history? Stephen's point to the Sanhedrin was you guys haven't learned a thing. You're still making the same stupid mistakes that your forefathers and their forefathers and their forefathers, you're still turning your back on God. You're still making excuses. You're still wanting to, uh, to have things done your own way. You're still not surrendered to the Lord. You're still trying to, you're living under do better, try harder than just trusting God and allowing the Holy Spirit to control your life. Uh, you are still repeating history in all the worst ways. So, I'm, so my question is to you, what have you learned from history? I'm not really, and I'm not really talking about this. I'm not, I'm not really talking about Stephen. Of course, I think we all learn something today. The next time we get ready to think, number one we've learned is that the next time you get ready to, stir, to stone somebody, it's going it's gonna, it's gonna to be a lot of trouble. You have to really prepare. Um, but aside from that, what have you learned from history? And I'm, and I'm thinking this, your history. <laughs> Here's my question. What parts of your history do you not want to ever repeat again? What parts of your history do you not ever want to repeat again? You know, uh, this is sort of another way of saying the more you do what you always get, the more you will get what you've always got. And so my question, what things in your own life are you tired of getting? What, would you like to get something different from now on? This is, this is super important. Um, those guys didn't learn. They had 100,000 years worth of history in front of them. They were just still so blind. You don't have, thankfully, a 1,000 years of history in your own life to overcome. But you got enough. What, what, what are you tired of getting? What would you like to get that's different? What, what patterns in your life do you know you need to stop repeating? I'm not gonna, there's not going to be a test on this, but I want you to just think. What patterns do you want to stop repeating? What attitudes do you know that must change? Right now, because if they don't, you're going to end up right back where you were before. What fears have to be conquered? More than what lies have to be rejected. Lies that you tell yourself or lies that people, important people in your life have told to you, said to your face about you that still haunt you sometimes and you still are controlled by them and it triggers stuff. What kind of new choices do you need to make now? 
in order to not repeat that history. Now, I've got my own list, and I, we don't... I, I, I don't know what's on your list, but I know we all have history. We all have... Some people say it like this. We all have a past. That's true. We all have a past. No matter how cute and friendly and helpful and wise and strong and together um, or capable you seem to be, we all have a past. We all have things, uh, <coughs> stories of our, of our brokenness, stories of our failure, stories like Saul, where I can't believe this, but I just sat there and I, and I watched them murder, they do this terrible thing, and I was like, yeah, let's do that. I mean, we, we, we all have flashbacks, and those flashbacks, part of our history, can push us into patterns. Um, patterns, attitudes, fears, lies, new choices we need to make right now. Let's... And... and Here's what I think we can learn from Stephen. Stephen, who wasn't a perfect guy, he was just a regular guy, who made a decision to surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit and say, okay, Jesus, I want, I'm tired of trusting me, I want to trust you. A and regular St Stephen, just a regular guy, turned his life around. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, turned his life around. And he changed. God changed him. He didn't change himself. God changed him. And when it came to time to face the crazy mob and go through the hardest of the hard stuff, he didn't see the angry mob He saw Jesus. And he saw Jesus right there with him. And his connection with Jesus even put him in a position to be able to say, Lord, please don't hold this against them. What kind of normal person says that? But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and your eyes are on Jesus, how do you not say that? You know what I mean? When you've really been changed by Jesus, it just changes everything. How do you not say that? Because it's Jesus living in you. So, so the first step, I think, is you just uh, you have to quit being so defensive. You have to stop hiding from the truth. You have to don't be so afraid of making changes, especially changes in your heart. Because, look, look. You can change a lot of behaviors without actually changing your heart, and you can go through the motions of looking different and acting differently. But, but the changes come in your heart. The real changes start in your heart first, and begins to turn you into a person who can say, "Lord, don't hold this against them." So. I, don't, I think the Spirit of God is speaking to each one of us right now and is giving us, I mean, like in big, 
72-point type is the same. At least one choice. Here's one choice. One choice. If you want to stop repeating your history, here's one choice you have to make now. One choice you have to make right now. And if you'll make that choice, the Holy Spirit will help you make the next step. Saying that to me, I think he's saying it to all of us. So, in order for that to happen, you just have to surrender to the Holy Spirit and say, okay, Holy Spirit, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what you're saying. I just know I don't want to repeat that pattern. I don't want to go through this again. I don't want to have the same thoughts anymore. I don't want to have the same fears anymore. I don't want to believe the same lies anymore. I don't want to make the same choices anymore. Holy Spirit, fill me to overflowing with your presence and do what you want to do with me. And then whatever that one choice is that Jesus gives you, just make a commitment today to do it. Not think about it, but just do it. Whatever it is that you do, just go and do it. So I want to pray. Let's pray for just a second. Father, in the name of Jesus, Send your Holy Spirit, Lord. We've been basking in your Spirit this whole time. Now, Holy Spirit, fall on us. Flow in us. And Lord, I, I ask that you would fill my heart and my life with the presence of your Holy Spirit in a way you've never done before. empower me to step into a new history. Holy Spirit, come and do the same thing in each heart. I speak against fear. I speak against uh, despair. I, I, I speak against confusion. I, I pray, Lord, that you would give us perfect clarity to see the choice you want us to make. Holy Spirit, just breathe. Just breathe your life and guide us into what you want us to do next. Give us the power to keep focused on you and walk out of our old history into a new history. I know God's already told you what he wants you to do. Remember that nudge I talked about? Don't nudge back. Just let go. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.